Well, good morning. Have you ever been asked to do something that you really, really didn't want to do? Of course, all of us have, right? At some point, many times in our lives, we're asked to do something that we really aren't excited about doing. It begins when we're kids, right? usually starts with mom and dad asking us to do something and we're not happy about doing, like clean our room or pick up our toys or say we're sorry to our brother or sister for something we have done to them. Uh, but it continues after that, doesn't it? As teenagers, as adults, whether you're, you're working for somebody or even if you're the boss, there are times when we're asked to do things we're not excited about doing. Sometimes we don't want to do it because it's just simply human nature. We don't like being told what to do, right? Uh, sometimes we don't do something because we don't understand the point. We want to understand why. What's the purpose of what you're asking me to do? Sometimes we don't want to do it because we don't want to get hurt, potentially, or embarrassed, or maybe we're afraid that we'll embarrass or hurt somebody else. But we all, at some point, get asked to do things that we really, really don't want to do. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at different prayers in Scriptures, in particular, Jesus' prayers and asking the question, you know, what would Jesus pray? How would Jesus pray? What would be the focus of his prayers? And we're taking what we learn from that, hopefully, and applying it to our own individual lives, prayer lives, connection with God, but also as a church. And today we come to the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was asked to do something that he really did not want to do. Father, not my will, but yours be done, was his response. Now, we're going to be using the passage that Diane just read from Matthew 26 as our focus today. And we're going to be asking and zeroing in on a couple of questions in particular. One is, how do we pray your will be done? Like Jesus. If we want to pray like Jesus, how do we pray that? And then secondly, what happens when we, like Jesus, pray, not my will, but yours be done? Before we get to those questions, though, let's set the table. In this story, there are 13 characters, but Matthew really only focuses on five. There's the there's 11 disciples. Remember, this is after Judas Iscariot, the guy who's going to betray Jesus has left. He's left them. He's run off to talk to the Jewish leaders. So you have 11 disciples. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And, and the two sons of Zebedee um, are James and John. So Jesus leaves eight of the disciples on the edge of the Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, his best friends amongst the disciples farther in. And so you've got 11 disciples, you've got Jesus, he's the 12th character, and you've got God, who is the 13th character. And, and of course, God is present in every story of Scripture. Sometimes he's assumed... Um, and sometimes he's seen or heard from directly, but here he is present as Jesus pours out his heart to God the Father. In verse 37, it says, Jesus began to become sorrowful and troubled. In fact, in verse 38, he says to his three closest friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I have to say that to this point in my life, I've never been overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. But I've experienced enough personally and observed enough and been a part of enough as a pastor to know that in the midst of pain and fear and sorrow, that the presence of friends is a tremendous comfort and source of strength. 
This scene should show us once and for all that Jesus was very much human. He needed his friends desperately at his darkest hour. Back to the text, verse 39. Jesus, it says, falls prostrate on the ground and prays, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So let's look at the first question. How do we pray like Jesus, your will be done? Now, now one of the rules of communication is that you pay as much, if not more, attention to the nonverbals and the tone of voice. Uh, You pay more attention to how something is said just as much as you do to what is said. So, for instance, you can say the same thing three different ways. You can say, I'm really sorry and roll your eyes with a sarcastic tone. It comes off as... Insincere. You can say, I'm really sorry, with gritted teeth and a growl, and it comes across as forced and resentful. Or you can say, I'm really sorry, and you look somebody in the eyes with a humble tone, and it rings true. So what does this have to do with prayer and, and praying like Jesus? Well, I can pray with resignation, like I'm giving up, feeling that I cannot fight God. What's the point? Your will be done. I can pray with resentment, angry because God is not answering the prayers I want the way I want them to. He's not delivering me from this situation the way I think he should and, and say, whatever, God, your will be done. I can pray with abject submission, cowering before what I perceive as a harsh taskmaster and say, don't hurt me. Your will be done. But if I want to see changes in my relationship with God, I want to see changes in my own life. I must begin by praying humbly and obediently, your will be done. Now, the Greek word used to translate Jesus' prayer is the word tholema. It's an active word, not a passive one. It's not sitting back, sitting on our hands, passively saying, do what you want, God. It's, it's leaning forward with open hands, extending our hands, saying, here I am, Father, take me, take my life, and do what you will. It's a matter of, of trust and of faith. God, you know best, your will be done. How do we pray your will be done? Well, we cannot ask your will be done and then go and do the exact opposite thing. We cannot ask your will be done and then persist in deliberate sin. It doesn't work that way. We need to think of prayer as a, as a conduit, as a channel between us and God, made possible by Jesus Christ. And sin in one or more areas of our lives can cause blockage to clear communication with God. Don't get me wrong, God can hear us, no doubt. But he's not likely to respond unless and until we walk in obedience in accordance with his will. And so when we harbor sin, God can still hear us, but we are not likely to hear him very well. Sin in one area can be an impedance to answered prayer in another area. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we have to be perfect or our lives have to be all together for God to answer our prayers. That's not how it works. If that were the case, Jesus is the only one who would have answered prayers. And I'm not saying that we, our good deeds can manipulate God into doing things for us. If that were the case, God would not be God. God cannot be manipulated or controlled. He's sovereign. He's the one ruler. But if we want to approach God the way that Jesus did, we must, we must endeavor to approach him with the right attitude, humility, and with a proper condition, obedience. So what happens when we pray, your will be done? Let's see what happened in Jesus' life. Jesus has asked Peter, James, and John 
to watch and wait with him. And after praying the first time, he returns in verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples, it says, and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The book of Hebrews in the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. And yet he remained without sin. And of all the temptations that Jesus faced on earth, this was the greatest. Remember back in the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the desert and he's tempted by Satan three separate times. Jesus passes the test with flying colors. When you read through the scriptures and the gospels, you see that as Jesus draws closer and closer to the cross, Satan's attacks grow more intense. And Jesus passes with flying colors. But in the garden at this moment, the temptation is the worst. You see, Jesus knew that he would endure ridicule and torture and an awful death. He was fully God, but yes, he was fully human as well. And he did not want to endure that. I'm sure there was dread. I'm sure there was a temptation to to run away, to escape the horrible physical pain that was to come. Yet I believe the greater temptation was to do anything he could to avoid being separated from God the Father. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had never been separated. For all of eternity they had been in communion. Three and one, one and three. And Jesus knew, and he dreaded the moment of not only physical death, but spiritual death. As Jesus peered into the cup that he would drink, he knew that he would be separated from the Father, taking what should have been the fate of us, spiritual death. And at this time of greatest temptation, when God the Father asked Jesus the Son to do something he desperately did not want to do, Jesus prays three separate times, not my will, but yours be done. And something changes and happens. Jesus is strengthened, and again he passes the test. You see, when we, like Jesus, pray, your will be done, the Father will help us to overcome temptation and persevere through trials. Because, you know, all temptation boils down to this. It's a temptation to do things our way and not God's. I mean, that's the root of all sin, right? The temptation to do things my way and not God's way. The temptation to think that I know better than God. It's the pull to do what we want and not what God wants. And when we pray your will be done, we are actively hitting at the core of of where that temptation thrives and something happens. Now, we can pray that God would spare us temptations and trials. We do that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And sometimes God will keep us from being in the place where we are tempted. But God uses prayer more often than not, not to exempt us from temptation or suffering or difficulty, but to prepare us and to strengthen us to endure or overcome it. I mean, we can certainly ask, and we should, we do daily, to ask God to to give us the pass from accidents or grief or pain or loss, health issues, relationship problems. And sometimes he'll answer those. But perhaps it's God's will not to excuse us. Jesus himself was not spared difficulty but to give us strength and maturity as we overcome temptation and as we persevere through difficulty. An unknown Confederate soldier wrote this prayer. I've shared it a couple times in the past. It's one of my favorites. He wrote this. 
I prayed for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of all. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I hoped for, yet everything that I Excuse me, I got nothing that I asked for, yet everything that I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all most richly blessed. When we pray, your will be done, not mine, we must be willing to accept what that will is, even when and if it's contrary to what we want or to what we ask for. What else happens when we pray, your will be done? Look at verse 45. Jesus is praying, and in verse 45 he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. So this Jesus, who just just a few minutes earlier has been agonizing about what is to come, is now a man of action. He's resolute. He's ready to, to face what's to come. He's ready to accomplish his mission. He says, Rise, let us go. Not to run away. Let's go forward. Let's face it. Let's walk to the trial to come. Now, it's interesting that Gethsemane is a word which means oil press. Gethsemane was a garden area among the olive tree groves on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. And it was a place of preparation where olives would be harvested and then pressed and oil would be prepared for use. It was a place where Jesus and his disciples had gone many times to talk and to pray. And for Jesus on this night, it was a place of preparation, too. You know, it's interesting that in the Bible, and particularly in the Jewish faith, olive oil is used for anointing, for choosing someone or consecrating someone for something special, a special role or purpose. The connection here is very clear. We have Jesus the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, sent to earth by his Father for a special time and for a special purpose. And the time was the weekend of his death. On the cross. And the purpose was to drink the cup set before him. And at this time and in this place, he prays, Your will be done, Father. And lest we forget, this is a prayer that Jesus had been praying all his life. It wasn't some heroic prayer of a man who has a chance to do something noble. It's a beautiful, submissive, obedient prayer of a man very familiar with it. And over the course of his life, he was prepared. And in the garden, he is prepared. And if we pray this prayer consistently, offering ourselves to the Lord, he will prepare us for whatever trial or difficulty or temptation comes our way. And so when we pray, your will be done, God the Father will prepare us for what's to come and we are able to do his will. Think of of prayer as cross-training, or maybe more aptly put, preparing for or training for the cross, the difficulties, the challenges that are come in life. Just like a pianist, has to practice chords and scales over and over and over, just like an athlete must run or lift weights or work on their special skill, so must we pray over and over daily, submitting ourselves, submitting our desires to God the Father. And when the time comes for us to pick up our cross, we'll be ready. You know, in the Christian faith, we can get so hung up on what we do not know. I wish I knew what God's will was, we ask. 
Boy, I sure I wish I knew what God wanted me to do in this situation. I understand that. I've said that. I've prayed that. I've asked that of God. But as Mark Twain so famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that give me the most trouble. It's the parts that I do understand. I mean, we know what the vast majority of God's will is for our lives. We know what types of hearts and minds and lives, what we're supposed to do with our our time and our talent and our treasure. We, We know what sort of character he wants to work into us. We have the example of Jesus Christ. We have the truth of his word to guide us. It's simply a matter of doing it. And praying this prayer that Jesus did, your will be done, not mine, can help us to close the gap between what we know and believe and profess and what we actually do. So when we don't feel like sacrificially giving, when we don't feel like staying celibate outside of marriage or faithful in it, when we don't want to give up time to those who need it, when we don't want to risk social rejection by reaching out to an outsider, when we don't want to forgive somebody who's hurt us deeply, we are to pray, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Because the ultimate issue here, again, is whether or not I will trust God. Will I fight for my way or will I surrender to his In his book called Jesus Among Other Gods, Rabbi Zacharias develops the idea of three different gardens. He writes, in the Garden of Eden, God asks, will you trust me? We know what happens. Satan deceives and humans refuse to trust. In the Garden of Life, he becomes a garden of death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God asks, will you trust me? Jesus surrenders to the Father's will. The Garden of Despair becomes a garden of determination. In the Garden of the Empty Tomb, Death reigns and hope seems lost. And God speaks, will you trust me? And Jesus is raised from the dead. And the garden of death becomes the garden of eternal life. And God still speaks today to us. And through our pain, our doubts, our difficulties, our challenges, our temptations, he whispers, will you trust me? That's the question that God asks of us as individuals and he asks of us as a church. Will you go where I lead you? Will you submit to my will? Will you daily pray the prayer that Jesus prayed? Not only in the garden, but throughout his extraordinary life, not my will, but yours be done. You know, I don't know what God is asking you to do today. The specifics are between you and him. Maybe he's asking you to forgive a spouse who doesn't deserve it. Maybe he's saying, I want you to step out in faith and share your faith with another friend who doesn't believe and who will probably think you're silly or stupid or foolish. Maybe he's asking you to give something or someone up that is dragging you down in your walk with Jesus. You know, as a church, we're focusing on the prayer, a topic of prayer, and we're encouraging people to make a concerted effort to pray for themselves and for their families, for their for this church, for the community, for the non-believer friends. Because we believe that we want to do anything of great value for God. It must begin and be sustained and happens through prayer, praying as Jesus taught us to pray. And so toward that end, I'm going to give you a couple specific ways you can be involved in that. Is um, a week from next Sunday, or a week from this Sunday, next Sunday, we're beginning prayer week. Um, it's a time when we're encouraging everybody in our church to spend time daily in prayer, focused time in prayer. Um, 
And you can do that a couple different ways. You can sign up uh, out on the foyer. There's a table for spots where you can sign up and, and come to the church and pray in the prayer room. It's a, it's, a, it's a special place in the Life Center where there's resources to help you connect with prayer. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of that at least once during the prayer week. Um, certainly, obviously, you can pray at home or wherever else you find it helpful to pray. And if that's, that your plan, if that's your plan, then we have resources that we'll make available to you next Sunday as you begin prayer week as well to guide you in that prayer time. And so we do hope that you'll be a part of what we do during prayer week, whether here at the church or at home. Because we believe that nothing of great value will happen without first beginning and being centered and focused in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your word. We're grateful for the example of your son, Jesus Christ, who despite the horrible, undeserved torture and death that he was facing, submitted to your will and and died for us. Lord, may we follow his example and, and learn from how he prayed and what he prayed, that we would approach you, Lord, with humility and with obedience, with uh, surrender and with trust and faith that we could pray, not my will, Lord, not my agenda, not my desires, but yours be done. So, Lord, we pray that you do a great work in us and through us, all for your glory, through Christ, your Son and our Lord.